So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 as we did last week. We did not finish. And so we have to pick up where we left off. But Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful this morning that we can open your word. It is a humbling experience for all of us, and it is maybe especially so for me. To endeavor to take your word and to teach and to elaborate and expound on what is there, the content that is there before us in these first five verses is difficult and humbling for me. Because in and of myself, Lord, I am just truly inadequate But we are trusting in you and our sufficiency is in you and the power is with you and in you. And so we ask you this morning in prayer and faith that you will come and and you will teach each heart. That you will take these words that you have inspired and illuminate them before our eyes. That the innermost depths of who we are would see and apprehend and love and cherish and, and be radically and eternally changed. As a result of your infallible word. So come and teach us and guide me. And direct me. And enable me. To be faithful to your word. That this group would be edified. And if there's one here this morning. That needs to be saved. Oh God we pray that you would draw and call them. We ask it in Jesus name. And amen. So last week we began these first five verses. And I really thought about it after after the service was over at maybe what took up the bulk of the time was that first section where we gave you the outline, and I'll give it to you again the way it's going to go, is the writer and his apostolic authority. We took a lot of time to establish who the writer of the book of Galatians is and to take the time to establish what he's trying to establish when he writes this book, namely that he has been given by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, apostolic authority to establish true and right doctrines among all the Gentile churches and the Jewish churches for that matter as well. But especially he was sent to the Gentiles, those who were not ethnic Jews. So if you don't know what a Gentile is, a Gentile is any people group in the world that is not an ethnic Jew, not an Israelite by ethnicity and so he writes and he sent to these gentile churches this greek roman ruled culture uh, of the time of the first century and he is sent by god by the lord jesus christ out with the good news the gospel of the grace of god the lord jesus christ and his work on the cross of Calvary, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension into heaven, and his return someday, we know not when. And so we spent a lot of time on that, and I won't spend the time this morning. I want to get to where we left off. I do want to say just the high points for those of you who were not here. 
under that first main idea of Paul and his apostolic authority, we thought about his miraculous conversion out of legalism. His miraculous conversion out of legalism. And actually, we spent an extended time just in reading from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 8, chapter 9, where we learned about the actual experience of Saul of Tarsus, whose name became known throughout the book of Acts as Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he tells, as Luke, rather, in that first, in 8 and 9, Luke is telling the story of Saul's conversion to Christianity. And I thought it was significant, I hope and trust that it was not uh, insignificant in your in your life and in your hearts and in your minds to just hear that account of how this man who was steeped in legalism, Jewish style, <laughs> Jewish style legalism, he was steeped in that. He was, I mean, he was, he was just the poster child for it. So when he writes the book of Galatians, and we get on down to verse 6, if you're still there, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So when he writes those words, friends, listen, first of all, he's writing with a very personal tone because of two things. Number one, he was the one who came and preached the gospel to these people. He was the one that witnessed them receive by faith through the power of the Spirit the gospel and welcome the gospel of the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And now they're confused. And he writes from a personal, with a very personal tone because he was the one that was there. It wasn't like he heard about them receiving the gospel from someone else. He's going to say that over the, over there when he says in chapter 3, verse 1, O fullness Galatians, who bewitched you, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And so he, he, he tells them again later on about the fact of how he was the one who did it. So it's personal because he was the one that established under God this, these local churches in this region of Galatia. Also, he writes from a very personal perspective because he knows exactly what it's like to be a legalist. And we went back and we looked at those passages from 1 Timothy 1, Philippians 3, that he testifies of this reality. So he's not writing this sort of uh, from an academic perspective, from a distance, but he's writing this as someone who has actually been miraculously converted out of Jewish legalism into this grace wherein he now stands. And that's what we did and, and that first subpoint. The second one was we looked at Paul's apostleship itself. And the reason we did that, because chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Galatians, that's exactly what Paul is doing. And throughout chapter 1 and throughout chapter 2, he is establishing his apostolic authority again for these folks that he loves and desires to walk in freedom and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so, you can look at it, and if you didn't take the notes then, you can write fast. Galatians 1, 10 to 12. Galatians 4, 
13 and 14, 5, verse 2, 6, verse 17. Again and again in the letter, he's going to pick up the same theme of establishing his apostolic authority. And why does he do that? We gave you a reason, some reasons for that, and I'll mention them here in just a moment. Paul, he says, not in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. His authority to speak and to establish what is the gospel is given to him by Christ himself. It does not come from any human being. And that's what he wants to establish. Why was it important? I gave you two reasons. Number one, the apostles were given authority by Christ to speak and act on his behalf. So why go through all of this, chapters 1 and 2, and even on through the book that you just heard me mention, those references, why do that? Because his, for him to be solidified in the, in, in the, among these churches as the apostle sent to them from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is important because... The apostles were given this authority to speak and act on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, every one of us, even today, disciples and Christians, we are given authority by Jesus. We are all ambassadors for Christ. Nevertheless, the the, the apostles, the twelve plus the apostle Paul, were given unique authority within that first century church, within the apostolic era, to establish the doctrines of the Christian faith until the establishment of the New Testament Scriptures. They didn't have them then. And so the the, the apostles were the ones that God, the, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically and pointedly called and equipped and gave the teachings To help us to understand what Jesus both accomplished through his life, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and what he has done with his cross work. They were the ones given that authority. We don't have that authority. I have zero authority to open this book, read to you a passage, and then say, but I want to correct this, or I want to change this, or I want to help you to understand how we should see it now differently than Paul did, or John did, or Peter did in the first century. I have no authority to do that whatsoever. If I do that, you need to come and, 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 and you need to remove me from this pulpit. The only authority that a preacher has today is holding this book up before his congregation. Thus says the word of God. That's all, that's all I'm here to do. Secondly, it's important because the apostles were given authority to establish this doctrine of the Christian church. Acts 2.42 says, and they, the early church, right after Pentecost, some, some time period, we don't know how long that was. It just says they, those that were converted, those who were in Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word doctrine means teaching. They were steadfastly continuing in, the King James, steadfastly committed, devoted to it. The apostles' word was authoritative. And so when when you get into the argumentation of the book of Galatians, it is argumentation. It's almost like legal argumentation for the true gospel over against false legalism of the Judaizers. And when he gets into this argumentation of what he's going to do, I just want you to know, and he wanted us to know, and God the Holy Spirit wanted us to know, 
that he has this apostolic authority, and it's important because that establishes what we believe and teach in the church. These other men that have that have come along behind him and his missionary friends that, that planted these, these Gentile churches, these men were not sent by God. They were sent by Satan, and they were being used by him to corrupt the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the second main point of the message last week was the recipients of the letter. And we know, according to verse 2, that this is the churches of Galatia. The best thing I could tell you to do is turn over in the back of your Bible. You can see a map of the first missionary journey. Most Bibles have them in them. If not, I'd be glad to show you a copy of it. Just so you can get a geographical idea. I'm going to turn this way. And, and you have Jerusalem where it all started. And you go up and around. And in this little region right there was where Paul planted at least four churches that we know of according to the book of Acts. In this region, this providential region called Galatia, and that's who, I believe, are the recipients of the letter. Now it's debated as to whether it was to upper Galatia, uh, Galatian churches or lower Galatian churches. And you can do all the research and you'll come to the conclusion that nobody knows exactly for sure. But we know that he did have uh, contact and establish those four. So it seems to reason that he would write back to them about this issue. Now, the third point and the main point that we did not get to last week was the message of the letter. And the reason I say this is because the entire message of the letter of the book of Galatians is in, in, in essence contained in the first five verses, especially in verses 3 to 5, of what he's going to say and elaborate on throughout this entire letter. So, the message of the letter, and I have... About four ways that I want us to think about this. Number one, I'll give it to you and then we'll go back. Number one is grace and peace. I want to talk about that for a moment. Grace and peace. Secondly, I want us to think about where it comes from. Where does it come from? Grace and peace. Secondly, where does it come from? Thirdly, how God gives it. How God gives it. How does He give grace and peace. Number four, for what purpose does God give it and for what purpose does Paul preach it? For what purpose does God give it and Paul preach it? This grace and peace. So that's where we're going. Number one. So if you missed it, you'll be able to hear it again. Number one, grace and peace. If you look in verse three, the message to them in the opening verses is grace and peace. Grace and peace. The reason that I think that's significant and almost all of Paul's letters begin in this way is because Paul was concerned extremely for the gospel and the gospel was the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God was extremely important to him. If um, if we turn back to the book of Acts chapter 20 for just a moment, I might be able to find this. I don't know. It just comes to my to my mind in Galatians. I mean, in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, he's talking to the elders, these pastors, these overseers of the church at Ephesus. He calls them together. It's the last time that he thinks that they're going to be able to see each other on this side of eternity face to face. 
And he's kind of giving them some last instructions. And listen to what he says in verse 24. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. There it is again. Where did he get this ministry? From Jesus Christ himself. And what is the ministry? Listen. To testify to the gospel. The gospel means good news. The good news of the what? Of the grace of God. The thing that he wanted to say was I want to testify the grace of God. And the, 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 the terrible reality is, my friends, that legalism, whether it be um, these Judaizers who were trying to bring the Gentile churches back under the Mosaic law in order to be justified and made right in the sight of God, or if it's modern day Christians who are trying to make you live by a list of rules of do's and don'ts that will establish you in a right and peaceful relationship with God, that is so terrible because it destroys the gospel of the grace of God. Because listen to me very carefully, it cannot be, the good news from God cannot be the grace of God and at the same time, you have to perform in order to be saved. It cannot be both. It's either one or the other. Either you are saved and justified in the sight of a holy God through His grace, or it is of works. It cannot be both. And it is grace, beloved, that brings peace. Grace and peace. Grace is first, because grace brings peace. The grace of God brings about the peace that we have with God. The peace the Bible says that surpasses all understanding, a peace that can hold you in the midst of the most difficult time in life, the most trying and difficult moments of life, you have peace because you rest in the grace of God. But if you don't rest in the grace of God, you must depend upon your own performance. And if you do that, you can never have peace. I remember hearing a story, one of my mentors, he tells it all the time, and he he would talk about he was raised in one of these legalistic churches. And he said, I began to just sit on the front row every Sunday because I had to come forward every Sunday and get saved again. And he said, it drove me insane. Not literally, but figuratively. It actually drove him to such despair that the final time, by the grace of God, he realized and he said, I'm not going to do it anymore. God, if you can't save me here and now. It's because he was taught, like these like these that we're going to learn about, these Judaizers that came and terrorized the people and corrupted the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which testifies of the grace of God, the grace of God that acts on behalf of the sinners, not the sinner's acting on behalf of themselves to save themselves. So we have powerful verses of Scripture, and I know that there are some other ones in the Bible that I'm not going to read to you. Listen, I'm going to say this. There are other ones that I'm not going to read, 
that lead these people. Today, you have, you, listen to me, you have friends, co-workers, and probably family members that believe that you have to live a certain way in order to be justified in the sight of God. That it is your personal performance that actually guarantees and solidifies a right relationship with the Holy God. You probably have, and you might have came in the room this morning believing that way. Listen, there are going to be texts of Scripture that lead them seemingly to that conclusion. So if you find them and you say, wow, what do I do with this? Bring it to church next Sunday. Call me this week. But I want to show you some that establish this reality of grace. Just a couple. So let's go to the book of Ephesians. You can't go to any better one, I don't think. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, this famous passage that all of you who've been to the church for any length of time definitely know. But in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and I want to read it from the, from verse 1. I'm gonna, you know how I read the Bible, right? So, so I'm going to read it and I'm going to say some stuff that I get excited about. I think it's good. It's all good, but you'll see. And you were dead. See, I, we could just stop right there. You were dead. You were dead, he says. This church is made up of people who were dead. So how do, how do dead people make up a church? They weren't physically dead. They were spiritually dead. Well, why use the word dead? Because they had zero life in them. So how can a person who has zero life in them ever do anything that could earn them acceptance with God? Can dead people do things? Listen to me. Spiritually dead people cannot do anything. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. You were in the flow of the world. <laughs> you, you remember the old time preachers? They would always say that. You know, you, 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 are you going to go with the way of the world? The way of the world. The sin of the world. And we're still preaching it because it's what the Bible says. You've got the flow of the way of the world. It's, it's, Jesus said that it's a, a broad and a beaten path. And how many are on it? Many. How many are on the straight and the narrow path? Few. Few. So you've got, you've got these two groups of people. You've got this one that seems like an ocean just flowing and the waves pushing in a direction. And, 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 and Paul says, you were once at one time dead and you walked Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Now you have another element. The world that is flowing in this, in this direction is doing so with a leader. His name is Satan. It's plain and simple. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit, listen to what he says, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what you were. I wonder what he's going to say made the difference. Verse 3 goes ahead and puts us all in there. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our uh, of the body and the mind. And we're by what? We're by nature children of wrath like who? The rest of mankind. You once were in that group of people, like the rest of the world, dead in your trespasses and sin, moving in the flow of the rest of the world, being deceived and guided and directed and led by Satan and all of his host of demon spirits. 
You were being, listen, you were being uh, driven by the passions and the desires of your flesh. That's the reason so many sins revolve around things that we do with our bodies. Like eating and sleeping and sex and, uh, and alcohol and drug abuse. Why? Because these things give us sensual, sensual pleasure and the body craves these things. And he says, you were driven by them. Driven by them. That's the way he walked. And by nature, you were, you were, you were a child of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. And then the most beautiful words in verse 4. But God, but God has done something. What, wouldn't it say, but, but you changed, but you did, but you started doing better? No, it doesn't say any of that. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His what? Of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the what? The gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. No one will stand before the judgment seat. And say. I'm coming in. Because of what I did. No one. No one. No one. If it were to be a scenario where Jesus would look and say, why should I let you in? The only thing you can say is through Jesus Christ. It's the only thing you can say. Let's go to one more. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. (laughs) Therefore, since we have been justified by what? And we got to remember that later on. We're going to see it. The book of Galatians is full of this teaching, this very teaching. Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? So the peace comes when we are justified, and the justification comes not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by the grace of God who has acted on our behalf in Christ. We have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this what? Grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. My friends, we are saved by grace. Grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from God. He does it because he wants to. Listen to this. And he does it because he can. Because Jesus Christ died for us. You see, he can't just extend grace. That would make him unjust. But when God 
comes in the form of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and dies in the place and for the sinner purchasing and paying for the sin debt in full, then He can lavish upon us freely all good things. Eternal life, justification, regeneration, the new birth, glorification in a glorified body, eternity of life with Him. He can do that because Christ Jesus purchased it on the cross of Calvary. Okay. Secondly, grace and peace, where did it come from? I gotta, I gotta move quicker, but you can answer it. You know where we're going. It comes from God the Father. What does he say? Galatians chapter one, verse three. Grace and peace from God our Father. And who else? And the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that is, I think, often neglected in, in the Protestant church today is the doctrine of the Trinity. And we're going we're gonna to see it in the book of Galatians. He mentions the Father and, and the Son here. And later on, he's going to mention the Spirit repeatedly and His work within them and among them. The harmony here, would you notice, of the Father and the Son, they are sending this grace that produces abundant peace. Paul is going to pick up on the Holy Spirit later. He speaks of the Spirit 14 times in this letter. Let me give you a couple examples. Galatians 5 and 18. Galatians 5 and 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. If you're led by the Spirit, look at chapter 5 and verse 25. If we live by the what? The Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so he says this grace and peace is coming from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, not to the neglect, which he gets to 14 times of repetition later on, of the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who applies the work of the Son to the believer. Now, do you remember who Jesus said would send the Holy Spirit? He did say that. Look, if you will, in John chapter 14. And if you don't want to turn, you're tired, look at, just jot it down. John 14, 26. John chapter 14 and verse 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. How did Paul authoritatively know and remember and keep together everything that he had to say in establishing the doctrines of the churches? Because the Holy Spirit was in him. Same way with John and the other apostles. But you know, there's a place in John 15, 26. Isn't that interesting? 14, 26, 15, 26. Where Jesus says that he's going to send the Spirit. But when he, the Helper, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So here we see that the, that the one who called Paul, the one who set him aside for this work of apostleship and gave him this unique authority as the one who is sending the grace and peace to the churches through the letter that he writes. And so it's the Trinity, it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that is at work establishing them and giving them this grace and peace. All three persons of the Trinity always work in harmony. The Father who plans is the Son who accomplishes the work that they planned and the Spirit applies it to the believer's life. That's where it comes from. Number three, how does God give it? Verse 4, how does God give it? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does He give this grace and peace from the Father and the Son? Who gave Himself for our sins. 
to deliver us from the present evil age. How does he do it? Through the substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. Who gave himself as a substitute for what? For sins. For sins. Jesus came into the world primarily to go to the cross of Calvary to die as a substitute for sins. Sin. He taught us a lot of good things. He gave us a lot of good examples. But listen to me. If you miss this fact, you miss it all. Jesus didn't come to be your example. He came to be a Savior. He came to die on the count of sin. Sin had corrupted what God had made. And God was going to purchase it back. And God cannot just simply sweep under the cosmic rug all of the sins of the people that he desires to save. He has to actually come in the flesh. He comes in the, in the person of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. The problem of the world today is not economic. The problem with the world today is sin. It's not education. It's sin. I can assure you, you can educate, the, we can be the most educated, we can have the best economy, we can have the, create the best environments for people to live, and we'll still have problems, violent problems, because of sin. The nature of sin. Jesus came to die for sinners. Romans 3, 23 to 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. <laughs> How can you even say those two statements together? Listen, I'll read it again. You didn't catch it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. What? And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption. How, how do you give a gift like that? Through the redemption. Through the, the, the word redemption is a, a purchasing word. You go to the, you think about years ago in the awful slave markets that happened and they would go and, and even in the Old Testament as people would be brought to severe poverty, they would sell themselves into slavery and they could be purchased back with a price. And Jesus redeemed us from the marketplace of sin with his own blood. It says in verse 25, Romans 3, 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. One of my favorite things to read. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. <laughs> I could talk about that a long time, but I can't. Romans six twenty, Romans chapter 6, verse 20 to 23 for when you were slaves of sin, there's another word in the Bible for what it's like to be un, to be lost. You're a slave. <laughs> we're, we're a country that likes to talk about freedom, right? We're a country that likes to think that we're free, but we're, apart from Christ, we're all slaves. We're all slaves to sin. Jesus said so himself. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free from regard to, in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't get any better than that. It's just a free gift. 
That's how he gives it. It's through Christ. Number four, for what purpose does he give it and what purpose does Paul preach it? He tells us. It was according to the will of God the Father to whom what be the glory forever and ever. The reason he gives us twofold, real quick, twofold. Number one, to deliver us from this present evil age. I skipped that in my reading there. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Why did Paul preach it? Why did God give this grace that produces peace? He does it through Christ and he does it so that he can deliver them, us, from this present evil age. How at home are you in the world? You ought not to be. Not if you're in Christ. The way we ought to describe this world is the way the Bible describes it. The way we ought to describe what it's like to live in this world as a child of God is the way the Bible describes it. Namely, as a stranger and a pilgrim that's wandering through this world as we anticipate and wait for the Lord Jesus Christ. And every day you open the paper at death and violence and robbery and scandal, you are reminded. And every day you look into the mirror and you see the reason that Jesus died for sin. And every day you're reminded of the fact that this world is corrupt and broken It will never be fixed until Jesus Christ comes himself to deliver us from the present evil age. Let me give you a couple of verses on that. John 15, 18 and 19. John 15, 18 and 19. Listen to what Jesus says about the people of God. Now listen, I'm not telling you to go out and offend people in your personality. I'm not telling you to go out and treat people wrong. I want you to go out and love the world. I want you to go out and be the church. And I want you to go out and spread the word of God. And the word of God will do the dividing. You don't have to do that. But I can assure you today that in God's sight, there is a division. There is a division. Listen to what he says in John 15:18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You, If you belong to Jesus Christ today, you're not of this world. The world's system, the world's philosophy, the way they think, the way they act, the way they're driven by the passions of their own flesh. He came to deliver us out of that. Freedom. Freedom. Ephesians. Again, chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Listen to what he says again. And you who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this what? Of this world. Jesus came to deliver us. From the present evil age. First John chapter 5 verse 19. First John chapter 5 verse 19. Listen to what it says. Quote. We know that we are from God. How do we know that? And the, he, he tells us a lot in first John about assurance. But he says we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The rest of the world is lying under the power of the evil one. You're dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible says you're blind. You have no spiritual life. You're blind. You're lost. You're a slave to sin. 
Satan is the one deceiving and doing the deceiving. He's a powerful being. And the whole world lies under his spell, as it were. He says, under the power of the evil one. But we're not of the world. We've escaped it. Why? Because we are the recipients of the grace of God. Because Jesus Christ bought it. And bought us on the cross. Secondly, why did God give it and why did Paul preach it? To the honor and the glory of God. Galatians 1 verse 5. To whom be the glory, the glory, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything is for that purpose. Everything does not exist for our glory, but for God's. And the reason that God gives this grace and the reason Paul preached this grace is for the glory of God. Because God is glorified when people are saved out of slavery to sin and given freedom. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and following. I want you to see this is one of the best places to see it. Why does God do what he does in giving us this grace, sending the Son, the Son going to the cross, the Spirit's active today in the preaching of the gospel, the drawing and the calling of people to Christ, faith. It's all for the glory of God. What was at stake among the Galatian churches was the honor and the reputation of God. And Paul says, I do everything for his glory. Look at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Why? Verse 6. To the praise of his what? Glorious grace. Now he can't say that. If legalism saves you, you realize that, right? God gets no praise for his glorious grace if you simply need to live a better performed life in order to save yourself. No, he says, all that he's doing is to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Skipping down to verse 11, Ephesians 1, 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be what? To the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What for? To the praise of his glory. The reason that Paul was preaching this grace that brings about peace. The reason that God gives the grace that brings about peace. Is to deliver us from this present evil age. And to bring glory and honor and praise to his glorious grace. Let me pray with you. Father, we are truly thankful today to have been able to open your word once and again and to see the rich and deep truths and riches that are contained therein. 
Oh God, my prayer this morning is that everyone in this room has experienced powerfully your amazing grace that reaches down the muck and the mire of sin and delivers us from this present evil age, delivers us from the way of thinking, the philosophies of life, the passions of the body, and delivers us into true and lasting freedom. Through the work of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. So that all who believe upon Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so today we pray that we would leave this place rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. The good news that testifies about your amazing grace. That testifies of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That testifies of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray this morning that you will help us to leave rejoicing in the freedom that we've been given. Rejoice in the grace that has produced such abiding peace in our heart. And that we would leave this place, O oh God, ready to preach and proclaim this glorious good news. For your honor and glory for the salvation of souls. And we do ask in Jesus' name. And amen.